Hello, and welcome to the LB School Podcast. I'm Christy Michelle, the School and Library Manager, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Zoraida Cordova. She's the author of Incendiary, which came out last year, and its sequel, Illusionary, which hits shelves this year on May 11th. Together, they're known as the Hollow Crown Duology. I just love saying those titles. They sound so epic, and that's exactly what the books are. Incendiary received a starred review from Shelf Awareness, which called it a high-stakes tale of palace intrigue and deception, and another from the BCCB, which praised it with, the Spanish-inspired world is carefully built through character dialogue. Zoraida, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be back. Yeah! We don't get to interview people twice on the podcast, so it's really special to have you on again. Oh, yay. I feel special. (laughs) All right. So let's jump right into the questions. Illusionary is the sequel to Incendiary, like I just mentioned. When it starts, we find Renata on the run with and faking being married to, which I will say is one of my favorite tropes, to Prince (laughs) Castian of Puerto Leones. Did I pronounce Mm -hmm. that properly? Yeah. All right. Could you tell us a bit about what happened in Incendiary as a refresher for fans and as an introduction for new readers? Sure. Um, We'll try to keep this spoiler free if you haven't gotten to Incendiary yet. But Incendiary is inspired by 15th century Spain. It's a story about a young girl with the power to steal memories. And when she was a child, she was used by the king and his inquisition, which I call the justice. She was used to steal memories. And, and she didn't know that she was doing it. So she was basically used as a child weapon. And eventually she was taken back by her own people called the Moria, who all have different kinds of sensory magic. And she grows up to be part of this rebellion. Then when her, her commander, Des, and the current love of her life is taken... Uh, She returns to the palace where she grew up as a kid, and she is determined to kill the king, kill the prince, and basically try to put an end to the horrors that are happening to her people all on her own. And so it's all about palace intrigue and uncovering the past and how that past can affect the future. I love whenever I come across a heroine or a girl described and the word power is used. So the way you were describing Renata and you said that she's a girl with powers, I love that. So she (laughs) actually has like, you know, like magical powers, but I also feel that she is a girl who is empowered. And that's something that really comes across in in both of the books. So I'm going to ask a question that I didn't list But what are some of your favorite tropes? Ooh, so I do write romance. Uh, I write adult romance uh, under the pen name Zoe Castile. And I am obsessed with finding good tropes. So some of my favorite tropes are, my absolute favorite trope is enemies to lovers. And if you read (laughs) Illusionary, that is the forefront of, of that book. I love found family as a trope. I love the trope of close proximity. Oh no, there's only one bed. What do we do? We're trapped. (laughs) I also love romance. I read a lot of romance and I just think romance makes a story better. 
And I think it's a great way of exploring characters, what motivates them, how they think and why they do what they do. I just think that romance as a genre and a romance that's featured in another genre is like great for exploring characters. So I'm a little bit the opposite of you in that I've never super been into enemies to lovers because <laughs> I'm, I'm much more into like just straight up sweetness. So like cohabitation and like childhood friends who become lovers, like those, right. those are my sweet spots. Um, but there's a little bit of the, the second one I mentioned in Incendiary. So I was really happy when I saw that. But even though Enemies to Lovers isn't my favorite, it's something that as an adult, I've come to really appreciate. And it's done so well in Incendiary. Just the kind of push and pull between do I trust this person or do I not, not trust this person? Can I trust my own feelings for this person? So why do you like Enemies to Lovers? I think it's because I like the tension that can can come from that. And if we're like if we're getting technical too, I do think that in illusionary is childhood friends to enemies, <laughs> to allies, to lovers, right? So uh, there's definitely a clear pathway between that relationship. And I think that as people grow up, they change inevitably. Renata was used as a weapon. She has a lot of trauma to unpack. But in book one, we when we meet Prince Castian, we only know him through an amalgamation of different memories. So do we even know this prince? And so in book two, we truly get to know him. And so we peel back the layers of are we truly enemies or are we allies or are we friends? And so I like I think I just love mess and I love drama. And I think that's why enemies to lovers. When I was reading Incendiary, I expected it to switch back between Renata and Castian because I oh. guess I just expected it because that's how I read a lot of romances. A lot of romances use that form. So why yeah, did you I, choose for it to only be from Renata's perspective? I think it's because it's her story. And I do, when I write my adult romance, I do use alternating points of views between the hero and the heroine. I did want to do that in the original draft, but when we, when we just started, when I started writing it and we had gone over the outlines, it just completely felt like Ren's story. And in order to just sort of seed all of the plot twists and turns, you know, there's just so much information in the book and the world is so big that I feel like it would be more streamlined in her point of view and it would remain, it would keep it her story, right? Her story, her trauma, how she unpacks it, how she learns to wield herself as a weapon as opposed to being used. Do you think the book being told in her voice and only from her point of view kind of helps to underline her being empowered in the book? I do think so. I think that it it maintains it as a narrative of like you're reclaiming you're reclaiming your past and you're reclaiming all of the damage that was done to you and that you did to yourself. And in order to do that, I think it had to remain her story. 
What are the books you read as a young reader that shaped you, both as a reader and a writer? What are the books you're reading now that you're excited to see in the world and share with others? So I grew up on a very steady diet of young adult novels and Nancy Drew. <laughs> My mom used to buy books for me. at the, the I grew up in Queens, New York, and there was a, a liquidator's uh, store nearby our house closer to the Long Island part of Queens and she would buy the books that were there for like mega sale and that was really the only way that I got books other than the library so my inspiration was a lot of that 90s urban supernatural teen fantasy like Vivian Vandeveld and Annette Curtis Claus Donna Jo Napoli Holly Black, Amelia Atwater Rhodes, and and so I grew up on this understanding of the real world with a magical layer on top of it. And then I got The Lord of the Rings from that Liquidators, and I didn't, it was too dense for me back then, because like, when you read fast-paced urban fantasy and then you jump into Tolkien, it's like, oh my god, this is like a slug. But I, I still really loved the story. And then the movie started coming out. So I was like, oh, wow, like high fantasy. And then when I went to college, I went through like a Kurt Vonnegut and Tom Robbins phase where their world is just this extrapolated reality still grounded in the real world. But it's these impossible situations, right, that the heroes get to be in. And so that's sort of the literature that shaped me, as well as um, a lot of magical realism from the Latin American perspective. Like, and a lot of Latin American magical realism, like Isabel Allende and Laura Esquivel and um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And so that all of that shaped me, I think, uh, as a writer. And do you have anything you're reading now that just leaves you really excited that you want to share with like your friends, with with other book people? Yeah. So I've been taking this year to read a lot more than I usually do. So the last book that I read actually was uh, Daughter of Sparta by Claire Andrews. And it's a book that sort of reimagines the Greek myths from the perspective of a young girl from Sparta. And she goes on a quest with Apollo, the god, and it's also enemies to lovers, like, sort of. I definitely wanted more romance from that book, and I messaged the author, and I was like, hey, you don't know me, but <laughs> please give me more romance if, if you write more of these. Also, can I have more of these books? Like, that book was really good. I think it is also a little brown book, and so that, that book was really fun. I had a great time reading it. Lore by Alex Bracken, which is also a Greek mythology book, but more in the contemporary, like it's, it's like Greek mythology in modern day New York. And I just, I, I've just been on like a really good high fantasy kick. So there's A Song of Rates and Ruin by Roseanne Brown, which takes this like, it, it's a West African inspired kingdom and this like queen that needs to needs the heart of a king in order to bring her dead mother back from the dead. And it's really, really, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful world building, such a fast paced novel. So those, I think I'll go with those three for now. That last one especially sounds 
like something I need to pick up and read. Yeah. <laughs> I usually ask writers what three other books they would place on a shelf next to theirs. And you can definitely tell me that because I am curious. But I wanted to ask you something just slightly different. If Renata could meet and speak to a heroine from another series, what would it be and what would they discuss? I think I have two heroines that I would pick. So I would pick Camille from The Bells by Danielle Clayton, which is a world, um, it's like The Uglies by Scott Westfeld in Marie Antoinette's court about a group of young girls with the power to change people down to their bones. So beauty is a commodity, right? And and sort of this elite group of young women get to wield that and have that power, but they're controlled. And so Camille is a belle who sort of goes rogue and she sort of starts to learn, she's very sheltered, and she starts to learn that the world isn't what it seems and the world is very, very different and and dark and the power that she's wielding is also being used as a weapon. So I think that they have very similar themes about rebellion and young girls with power. And likewise, Alina Starkoff from Shadow and Bone by Lee Bardugo, I think that the idea of breaking the rules, having all this power, rebellion, as well as falling for boys with dark hearts, and I think that, that they would definitely need to have a conversation, Renata and Alina. I also <laughs> realized that one name you mentioned a little earlier about as an author who like helps shape you, I think her first name is Annette. I only just realized that she wrote a book that haunted me for years. Um, Silver Kiss. The Silver Kiss. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, so I read that book. I like picked it up randomly when I was, you know, 13, 14. And I was like, oh, whatever. Vampires, right? But I started reading it and I became like obsessed. But then I had to return it to the library and I'm like, I love following the rules because that's how I am. So I returned it to the library and then I like moved around a lot as a kid. So I moved and this was, I'm a little bit old. So this was before the internet and I didn't remember the name. I didn't remember the name of the author or the title of the book. And I just spent years with that book, like in my consciousness, not knowing what it was or where it came from. (laughs) And it wasn't until like five years ago when I was like, why don't I just Google what I remember of this book? So I Googled like vampire with evil little brother. And the silver kiss came up and I was like, maybe this is it. And I bought it. I read it. And I was like, this is definitely it. And it's just as potent now as it was then. And just as potent to me reading it as an adult, as it was when I read it when I was a teenager. I love Annette Curtis Claus. She also wrote a book called Blood and Chocolate, Mm -hmm. which is the perfect allegory of like, I wish there had been more werewolf books. But it's, she was just so good at writing, like, the supernatural as a metaphor for being a teenager. Mm-hmm. And Blood and Chocolate was, uh, sorry, The Silver Kiss is definitely, I recently reread it because I'm the editor of an anthology called Vampires Never Get Old mm-hmm. with the with uh, my co-editor, Natalie C. Parker. It's 11 stories reimagining vampires with 
a more diverse cast, right? So we have black vampires, native vampires, queer vampires. And Natalie and I did a podcast called Vampires Never Get Old, the podcast. And we discuss, it's very limited. It's only one season. And we discuss the vampire canon in literature, specifically in teen literature. And The Silver Kiss is one of the first ones that we did. I'm pretty sure it came out in 1992. And I remember... I didn't, I didn't read it until 99 when I was going to the bookstore. And I, it took me forever to get that book again because I remember splurging on it, right? I was like, oh, my God, it's $6, right? Back when paperbacks used to be $6 yeah. in YA. <laughs> and, and then, like, I lent it to – like, one of my friends borrowed it for me, and she lost it. And then I never saw that book again, so I had to just keep checking it out from the library to reread it. I love how kind of what we're discussing right now is how – lasting why literature is like it's called why literature and sure there's crossover but it's not just literature that can be read by young adults and also be read by adults it's literature that'll last throughout your life from your young adulthood into your your adulthood i think that's really powerful <laughs> yeah absolutely why do you enjoy writing fantasy I mostly read contemporary fiction, and so the world building doesn't immediately register with me, even when it's intricately done. How do you approach world building? Do the characters come to you first, or is it the physical world they inhabit that comes to you first, or is it the rules that govern their world that comes to you first? Well, I write fantasy because why not, right? I, I always think that I grew up being very, very absolutely bored with the, with my reality. Not that Queens, New York is not an exciting place, but <laughs> it, it, it actually really wasn't. I think that I was a very quiet and introspective kid and I just watched the world around me and I felt like I wanted more, but I wasn't getting it. And so I turned to books that had a gateway to the magical world, which was urban fantasy and and then that led me to high fantasy and space fantasy and you know one of my favorite movies is star wars and and i think that like that watching that movie over and over again as a kid the trilogy itself allowed me to just keep thinking about the world as in like a big picture and and how we can make these these fantastical worlds that have no limits. And so now with my, like the opportunity that I have to, to create these worlds, I always think of character first. I can't start building the world until I have the character defined because I do believe that the character shapes the world around them, but they're also a product of their world. So in order for me to answer like, why is my character like this? I, I also need to answer, like, how did the world make them like this? And and that's just sort of a catch-22 question. It's like an Ouroboros in itself. And um, and that's the whole, like, I find that incredibly fun, and I love doing that, that world building. And then, then the rules sort of fall into place because it's still my world and I'm the boss. And I get to, I get to pick and choose what, what goes. I definitely see that with Renata. Um, I definitely see how the world she inhabits shapes her, but also um, how that kind of reflects back in how she interacts with the world. So have you always been a writer? Did you write when you were when you were young? 
I did. I, I wrote, I started writing when I was a teenager. I got uh, an assignment. I tell the story all the time, but uh, I got an assignment. For those of you who have never heard this, I got an assignment when I was in the ninth grade, no, the eighth grade. And my teacher, it was an extra credit, write a short story, three pages for extra credit. And I wrote a 21 page short story based on like the drama that my friends were having. And I, you know, uh, because I was 12, I, or 13, I, I named it after a Jessica Simpson song called Final Heartbreak. And my friends didn't talk to me because I wrote down all of their drama in a class assignment, but it's fine. We, we made up. Um, and so from there I started writing more. So I went to high school and and I was like, I'm going to become an author. I had a teacher named Mr. Johnson, who was my social studies teacher. And I wrote like, he asked us like what we want to do when we grow up. And I, and I, I wrote this very impassioned essay about how I'm going to be an author. And so he sent in an application for me for a writing camp hosted by the National Book Foundation. And so they they had this writing camp for years. It was like a, a week away, Alex Sleepaway Camp, right? And it was a week away and we had teachers like Jacqueline Woodson and the uh, Norma Fox Mazer, who passed away, but she was a one she was a wonderful teacher, Kamiko Hahn and Cornelius Eady. And so we had these like incredible writers and they they taught every summer and I went twice and so I was 16 17 it was like better than getting an MFA because I learned how to how to workshop story how to think about story I mean my I was still 16 so like my books were terrible but I still learned more there in those like camp weekends than I did like trying to go to college for 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 creative writing and then when I was 23 I got my first book deal because I just never stopped never stopping uh trying to write books and so it was like a decade it took me a decade but I did it and now I'm 33 so it's been 20 years (laughs) congratulations thank you so I'm wondering what your writing um routine is like are you an early morning writer do you write during your lunchtime? What's what's writing like for you in your life? It's changed over the years. When I was in college, I was in college and then I worked at a nightclub full time. So I wrote in class and I also had this like teeny tiny laptop that they like uh, that Dell had put out. I don't remember. It was like a micro notebook. And when the club was dead, I would pull that out and then write while my manager wasn't looking. And then, then I, I left school. I dropped out of college because it just wasn't for me. <laughs> and I felt like I needed to get my education out in the real world. And so I just worked and traveled and explored and, and found story in that way. And so I would write. So when I wasn't going to school, I would write before work, during work and after, like after work, like I would get home at four o'clock in the morning. And, and if I, and if I, if I, if I wasn't tired yet, now I'm tired all the time because I spent all of my waking hours in my early twenties, uh, <laughs> uh, writing at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. So then I would write then. And so now that I work full time and I've been writing full time since 2016, I have no longer the aspiration of being an early morning writer. 
I really tried so hard to be the kind of writer that wakes up with the sun and sets down to write with my coffee and whatever. And I think that I'm just a night owl and I will always be a night owl. And, you know, I was a night owl for a decade. And so I just can't change that now. So now my writing routine, I'm actually not writing for the month of February. I'm just, I'm taking, I've been on deadline for for three or four years and continually. And so now I'm just taking a month off for the first time since 2017. Um, Congrats on that. Yeah. Thank you. And so I've just been taking this time to recharge and read. I've read 18 books this month. I'm so like, that's never happened ever in my, like my whole life. Not even when I was a teen, you know, hauling books from the library. But now I sort of, I do my administrative work, answer emails, answer my editors, answer my agents, take like blogger requests and all of that stuff. And I do all of that before midnight, before noon afternoon then I have I'll have lunch or I'll take a walk on the beach because I'm in Puerto Rico and then I will come back and then I start writing after lunch and so I still maintain that I like my brain just won't get started it's like like a like a a motorboat like um not a motorboat that's terrible um (laughs) it's like a what is it a bike I don't know I just have to like rev the engine (laughs) To really get going. Like an old but beloved car. Yeah, right. It's, I don't drive, so I was like, cars. Yes, that's <laughs> a better metaphor. I'm a writer. See, this is what happens when you're on deadline for so long. Like, your brain is just fried. <laughs> <laughs> I always like hearing how writers write because I feel like it's so mysterious. Um, <laughs> even though there's so much, like, writing in the world, and it's, like, one of the basic blocks of communication. How did you navigate all the political intrigue in the books and big emotions between the characters, especially Renata and Castian? Because, you know, I love romance. They start out as enemies, but their love runs deep and strong. And you specified exactly what they are a little bit earlier in, in this podcast, but I might describe them as childhood sweethearts. I think that, so I, I definitely think I'm better at romance and the political intrigue stuff, but when it came to the political intrigue, I saw it as a game board with secrets that needed to be collected. And so the unveiling of those secrets unveils who Prince Cassian really is in book one. And in book two, it's more of a quest. So the quest leads us to this magical weapon, right? This knife that, this magical knife that they have, that Renata and Castian have to find. But a quest is a vehicle for self-discovery. And the discovery that Renata and Castian have to go through is each other, right? And understanding who they were, who they are, who they want to be, and that they should give in to the feelings that they have for each other. Because like above all, like this book, book two is a love story. And not just like, it's not just a romance, it's, it's a love story between two people who have found their way back to each other, despite all of these odds. Renata, Castian, and Des, and all of their allies and friends and people they meet along the way, they all go through a lot to get to their happy ending. I never doubted that they'd reach it. But there are moments of fright and sadness and even violence in the books, along with moments of real connection 
and recognition and love. Like you said, incendiary is a love story. So they go through a lot before they reach the happy ending. How did you approach writing the darker elements in the books? And are happy endings important to you? So I, I do think that because I write young adult happy end and romance and adult romance, happy endings are very important to me just because I believe that I think that young adult novels have to have an ending of hope because we're writing for teenagers. And I think that we have to show as dark as a world is, right? We have to show that there there's a little bit of a light and not in a naive way, but in a way that allows us to to think that like with this hope we can do better things, we can help people, we can, you know, do anything. And and so that message is very important. And as dark as incendiary is, at the end of the day, it is about hope and change and 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 learning about yourself and who you can be and what that means and finding your place in the world. And so those moments are in contrast, like they're in direct contrast with the darker aspects of of incendiary, right? Like it's, I, I definitely, I think that I, I was actually a little bit lighter than what the real, like the inspiration of the world is, which is the Inquisition, right? The Inquisition was a horrible period of time in our, in human history and the persecution of so many people. And I think that like, I was even lighter in its depiction than I could have been, right? But I, I think that I wanted to you know, there's still awful things that are happening to the, you know, to the, the the fictional Moria in my world, but I also didn't want it to be a book that, like, displayed tragedy and violence just for the sake of it, and that's why I pulled back on that a little bit. But there are still very violent moments, and I think that it it's sort of like this purging of the bad in the society, and Renata and Kasten's journey is trying to, like, bring peace to a kingdom, which is sort of idyllic. Yeah, it is kind of idyllic, kind of like, you know, waking up at 6am with your coffee to write (laughs) in absolute quiet. But I did think you did such a wonderful job of balancing the the darkness and the light in in, in incendiary. It was, it just really struck me. Your previous answer made me wonder if you did any kind of research for these books, and what that research was if you did do it. I did read a lot of books about medieval Spain and, you know, these books, these texts are very dense. I read about Isabel of Castile because Isabel of Castile created the Inquisition. But in my world, there is a male king, a male ruler. So it, it was sort of just, I just wanted to read about that time period. So I try to read about the time period. I try to get texts that were primary sources from Jewish perspectives because a lot of the Inquisition texts that I was finding initially, like very, very superficial in the very superficial research was from Catholic sources. And so when I did deeper research, because there's like, there's always layers to researching time periods, right? Like you, you, you find the texts that are written by the, the winners or the conquerors or, you know, whatever the perpetrators. And then I found, I started digging deeper and finding texts that were like a journal of a, of like a rabbi during the Spanish Inquisition. And so I think those, pri- those to me would be more primary texts. And what I discovered was that a lot of the things 
that happened during the Spanish Inquisition, like border patrols, you know, checking people's documentations and taxations for traveling and and things like that and for trying to cross borders how much of that has actually changed right from the world that we have now Mm -hmm. and that was sort of horrifying (laughs) to realize Mm -hmm. so if anyone thinks that the that any of the the the, that aspect you know the toll roads and in incendiary that is it has anything to do with like the U.S. politics it's like nope that's been around since the inquisition and we just haven't learned as people societies right and so so that I did that kind of research I also read books about medieval Europe and those texts are they're they're pretty dense and a little bit boring but they're it's good to know right I I I was also had to make very specific decisions because I gave the palace indoor plumbing even though that didn't exist in the 14th and the 15th century so I took creative liberties in order to create some aesthetics and moods I like that you're an author that's what you're <laughs> supposed to do yeah right so I, I sort of picked and choose what I wanted to, to 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 keep and then I also looked at like what did people eat in medieval Spain right like what did what did they grow um and so thinking about that helped me put together what they're carrying in their backpacks so it's not just like hard cheese and bread What would you like readers to take away from Renata and from both Illusionary and Incendiary? I think that I would like readers to take away from these books, from the Hollow Crown duology. I hope that your takeaway is that no matter what your past is, you still get to choose your own path and what that looks like. Um, You get to make your own decisions, including getting to choose your own family, the family that works for you, and that no matter how dark things get, there should be still hope at the end of your story. The duology is really hopeful. And I'll add on to what you said and say that other things you can get from these books is it's just a good time. Like, I had (laughs) such a good time reading Incendiary it's cold and dreary where I am right now. The world itself is a, a little cold and dreary right now. And Incendiary just took me out of it. It took me into another world. And it gave me these characters that I felt for. And I just loved being with Renata and Castian so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I hope that everyone picks up these books. They were so much fun for me to write. I was working on Illusionary during the pandemic. So that was really hard <laughs> because it, you know, it, it sort of, I think that's why there's so much hope in the book because I was like, things are very bleak. So I just needed to put all the hope in whatever I was creating. I'm really glad you did that because that really shines through and it just it's just I had so much fun with the, with, with the books and with Renato especially. Zoraida, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Listeners, go ahead and grab a copy of Incendiary Now. Illusionary comes out on May 11th and you won't want to miss it. You can find Zoraida on Twitter at at Z like in Zorro, online at at ZoraidaCordova.com and on Instagram at at Zoraida Solo.
She also has her own weekly podcast with Danielle Clayton called Deadline City, where they discuss publishing and the craft of writing. You can always find us online at at LB School on Twitter. Until next time. Thank you.